Welcome back to the 137th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the cracks that are finally showing in the labor market and signal some unfortunate things to come. The corner that Kevin McCarthy has found himself in on this no term limits vote. It's an interesting situation. And our final story is about China and the fact that their marriage rate is going down drastically, which doesn't bode well. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So for the longest time now, you've heard about the constant doom and gloom about the coming recession. And, you know, for a while there, there was a little bit of pushback from the mainstream, but it has really yet to materialize. So is the recession still on the horizon? Or is it all just media bluster, people trying to scare certain investors or just trying to get a little bit of extra attention in the media coverage? Let me know what you think down in the comments section below, and maybe you'll have a different opinion after you hear our first story today, which comes from the Wall Street Journal. Cracks open in the labor market. So this is obviously something that gets talked about a lot when looking at the economic prospects of the nation. The idea, okay, inflation's been crazy high, but we've still had a really strong labor market. And there have been different reasons that this has been quoted, mainly because if we still have a strong labor market, that means that there's still lots of pressure on wages. So the people who are going for jobs are saying, hey, okay, right now it's really tight. A lot of people, they're not unemployed. There's not too many people coming to you to fill these positions. So I'm going to need a little bit more money in order to actually come work at your company. So the people that are applying for these jobs are in a relatively good position because the market is scarce. And then there are other companies who have been hiring over the last few months, maybe the last year, and they've seen, okay, maybe a recession is coming, but I don't want to necessarily lay these people off because I don't know what's going to happen here in the future. There's a little bit of uncertainty. So employers are holding on to those good employees. And as I reported probably two weeks ago at this point, instead of firing people in order to cut costs because of how crazy supply chains are, they're actually retaining, they're keeping some of their good employees and though they're just cutting their hours and the wall street journal reported on this and they're trying to lay the land again and they bring this up with a few other factors quote the u.s labor market has been remarkably resilient despite rising interest rates and slow growth but are cracks starting to show that's one way to read the friday's lackluster jobs report from june from the labor department U.S. employers added 209,000 jobs for the month, down nearly a third from a surprisingly strong May, and the smallest gain since the COVID days of December 2020. Job gains are revised down from April and May by a total of 110,000. The jobless rate stayed low, falling a tick to 3.6, and has led at a historically low rate since the post-pandemic hiring surge began. Despite continued layoffs at high-profile tech firms, nearly 10 million jobs remain open as of May. Employers still prefer to keep good workers rather than lay anyone off, but there are signs that they are going to get more cautious 
with new hiring amid economic uncertainty, end quote. And this is really what they're focusing on here, which is the uncertainty of the market. You see it every other day when you are looking at stock prices or you're looking at different bond valuations. The market is up and down. The only thing that's keeping my portfolio afloat right now is basically Bitcoin. And even then, I've only seen a surge because of that. And sometimes it's offset by the volatility in the stock market. And of course, there have been some turnarounds, especially led by tech. But think about it this way. If tech companies laid off a large majority of their employees and they're still making the same revenues, then they're going to have less costs because they're paying less people and they're going to have a higher revenue per cost equation, basically. So they're going to have a higher revenue compared to their cost than the previous quarter, but their revenue hasn't actually changed. So the base formula has not changed. So that's why the tech se sector is doing so good right now and rallying really, really hard. But now that we're starting to see a little bit of slowing and we're starting to see the Fed they did a little pause to see if the market would respond, to see how the inflation rate would respond. It did come down a little bit, but it is still at, I believe, 4% for June, which is about 2% higher than they want, which means, guess what? More rate increases are coming. And this is a very interesting approach because a lot of the conversation at the very beginning of this whole turmoil was from the conservatives, especially, hey, we are going to have to take a 1980s approach. We're going to have to take a Reagan approach. We are going to have to jack up the interest rates. We're going to have to induce a basically a coma, a real quick coma, in order to reset everything, get inflation back in check. But this Fed has been feathering. They've been lightly touching the pedal. You know, they've been lightly breaking. It's some really congested traffic, but they don't want to come to a full stop and cause that ripple effect down the road. And they've been feathering those brakes. And we'll see if it works out. I don't know if it necessarily will. But for as of right now, I'm pretty sure everybody's in the same situation. You see Wall Street unsure. The market is, like I said, extremely, extremely volatile. But what they're trying to highlight here is the slowing of job growth. So let's go to a quote that they, they talk about it a little bit more. Quote, but the pace of growth has slowed compared to last year. Manufacturing has nearly was nearly flat, about 7,000 new workers. Government jobs made up for more than a quarter of new hiring in June. But those gains are unsustainable as state tax revenue comes under pressure from slower growth. Monetarists point to a collapse in the money supply and say it's past time for the Federal Reserve to end its round of tightening. But the Fed ignores the money supply and inflation remains sticky around 4%, which means no real wage growth for millions of workers. Average hourly earnings for the last 12 months are up 4.4%, and another sign that points to an even higher gains for workers who have stayed in their jobs for the past year. This won't comfort the Fed. It's possible to have job growth with disinflation, as in the 1980s showed. But the difference now is that the political class lacks an economic growth strategy. President Biden's plan is growth by government subsidy, which can certainly help favored industries like green energy. But it isn't a spur to broad-based investment of the kind that will counteract tighter mo money and regulatory binges that is adding costs across the economy. End quote. 
So what they're saying here is this growth is artificial. Oh, guess what? That is what happens when you artificially subsidize certain markets and you don't have economic growth policy that is meant to help everybody, especially when you put more regulations and you have a really tight money supply. But when you put more regulations on a whole bunch of businesses, guess what happens? If you have a new regulation that comes out from the EPA that says, Every single person needs to have their emissions under this. And instead of having a strict reduction policy, we're going to say that you need to use this filter. Well, now all those companies have to go out and buy that filter. Now, that filter could be inexpensive, but it also could be an extra $1,000 to install, an extra $100 per month in maintenance costs, if not more. So just think about it this way. When you have a environment where you are trying to create new jobs, which is great. We, we do want Joe Biden to have policies in place that create new jobs. But if you're doing it by simply giving certain industries handouts and making it harder for other industries to prosper, while we have record-setting inflation, meaning all of their costs are going up, then maybe that's not going to be conducive to creating a thriving job market in the long term especially when people are afraid of the volatility that is probably going to come their way. So they are keeping their workers. And instead of firing people or letting some people go, they're saying, no, 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 we'll keep you, but we're going to reduce your hours. Now, as expressed in the article from two weeks ago, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some people have reexamined how they want to go about their life, and they're saying, I'll take a few reduced hours. I'll spend a little bit of extra time with the family. But if at the end of the day you are keeping these people because you don't know what's necessarily going to happen and then the recession does hit and you have to let them go anyway, was that really fair to them? Could they have been out there finding a different job that really needs them and wouldn't have let them go? You know, that's just my opinion on the matter. That's not bearable by 100 That's not 100% borne out by fact. That's just a thought that really popped into my mind as I was talking about this. But for those of you who may be saying, oh, well, it's all Biden's fault, well, Honestly, the Republicans have not given them much of a, a counterbalance. They haven't been proposing anything to help this situation either. Quote, Republicans in Congress also haven't done much of a growth strategy as they focus on cultural issues and Biden scandals. The House Ways and Means tax bill has some good elements, but its main plank is a temporary increase in standard deductions that would not do anything to change the incentive to work and invest. Both parties have given up on trying to pass new trade deals. Let's hope that the June job reports is a temporary dip and not a sign of a more serious trouble to come. And they end this article with a nice little pithy thing, which is, quote, private employers can't expect to get any help from Washington unless you catch a green or national security subsidy, end quote. And honestly, it's not even just that they're focusing on green energy or national security companies like Northrop Grumman and everything like that who are supplying different weapons to the military who are giving them to Ukraine. It's not just that. It's that Biden and some of the Republicans have given up or at least held back on re-upping free trade agreements. And let's be clear, there are, of course, good reasons for doing so, or at least they have their reasons for doing so. It's not like they're just doing it because, oh, free trade, bad. No, they're trying to spur at-home economic growth that allows us to be independent of China because we see them as a threat and we see this Cold War 2.0 really taking off. 
But these protectionist policies are not going to spur the economy in a way that is going to help everybody. It's just going to help certain segments of the economy, like the CHIPS Act, a great piece of legislation to build chip infrastructure here in the United States and become less reliant on China. But it is a way, one, that the government is just increasing spending, and two, is selectively choosing which industries get to thrive and which industries do not, rather than opening it up for a much more broad trade policy and doing some protectionist policies for some of the important national security or green energy companies. They're just doing the subsidy programs. So maybe there could be a two-track. Maybe there's a, for a non-national security interest company, you open up free trade restrictions, maybe open a few different free trade regions where they could very easily you know, export some of their goods to other countries that may need them, while also having more protectionist policies in certain segments of the economy. Maybe that's a possible step forward, or maybe that's just not how the new... I don't want to say neocon, but the new mainstream political class in Washington, or should I say the old mainstream political class in Washington, wants to handle the situation right now. But also, I do understand where they're coming from. They don't want to unleash the economy too much because they're afraid that it's going to collapse the current fragile state that we are in. Because things are so unpredictable, they're trying to keep the status quo while increasing spending in areas that they're okay with doing it because they see it as crucial to, like they say here, green, a green future and the security of our nation. And everything else that's not included in that, it's okay, guys. You'll have your time after the recession and after there's been some more consolidations and after those big companies that are in your industry buy up the small ones when all their asset prices are a little bit lower. That's just my opinion on the matter. That's not what the Wall Street Journal is saying on this one. But it is an interesting thing to see these cracks in the job report. And we'll see going forward in the next few months whether that recession is coming or whether, like I said at the beginning, it is all bluster. And talking about blustering or peacocking a little bit, you know, trying to say one thing while doing another thing or make your case a, a little bit sound a little bit better than it actually is. Let's jump to this next article from the National Review. Kevin McCarthy should avoid a no-win vote on term limits. So for those of you who have been listening for a while, I believe I mentioned it quite a long time ago at this point, I, I like the idea of term limits, I'm not going to lie to you, and most of the American people do. And the House Freedom Caucus has been pushing McCarthy to bring forward legislation about term limits. But it's a little bit tricky. They don't think that they'll be able to get all the votes on this extreme bill that they want to put forward, and they know it won't pass the Senate. So National Review has a, a few guiding, a guiding star that they're placing up there in the sky for Kevin McCarthy to navigate his way through these troubling seas of not losing his favor with the constituents that he represents in California. Quote, it looks as if House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is about to make a very avoidable blunder on term limits, an issue supported by more than three-fourths of Americans and an even greater share of Republicans. Indeed, every significant GOP presidential candidate except for Kansas Governor Asa Hutchinson supports the concept. McCarthy and the Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan 
will attempt to keep the promise that they made to the Freedom Caucus members who agreed to support McCarthy for Speaker only after he agreed that he would hold a floor vote on term limits. A vote this summer would honor that pledge, but only in theory. The problem? The bill that McCarthy is likely to bring to the House floor is a limit of 12 years in the House and 12 years in the Senate, so one politician could serve a total of 24 years, longer than Americans want, according to polls. End quote. So the the argument that the National Review goes on to really talk about here is that this is kind of not what they need to bring forward. The idea that somebody could be a 24-year politician seems to upset some people. For me personally, I, I don't actually dis- disagree with the idea that we should have a 12-year limit for the House and then 12-year limit for the Senate. I like the idea that both bodies of the legislator get a, or anyone that is a representative in there, whether they're from the House or the Senate, they both get 12 years. This gives them enough time to build coalitions, to build connections across the aisle, to put up lots of important legislation, while also making sure that they don't become too ingrained in the party system. It allows a relatively rapid turnover. And if anything, I think you could argue that the Senate should be made up of people who are even more experienced in the process of governing the nation and therefore could be a completely legitimate idea to move from your 12 years in the House to your 12 years in the Senate. Because even if you come in at 50, you have 24 years, so you're there until 74 I think the more likely thing is most people would be elected when they're 40. That's when a lot of people are more politically active. They have a good base underneath them. They build enough connections. So imagine you have from 40 until 64. I feel like that's not a totally outrageous age. And also, I like the idea of only about six terms for House members because it puts that limit, you know, every two years when they get voted in, they're looking forward and they're like, okay, I still have five elections. I still have four elections, so I need to pay attention and care about what my constituents think so I can actually get reelected, while also not making it so that they have been the incumbent for so long that people are just completely okay with voting for them. Because 12 years, that's a bit of a long time, but not so long that you're talking about a Diane Feinstein where people are like, oh yeah, she's just been around forever. I'm not going to change the status quo. So I think that that's actually a pretty good middle ground when it comes to term limits. Some people totally disagree with me. As this next quote goes on to say, it they kind of call it, actually, I, they literally call it toothless. Quote, nearly half of G- McCarthy's GOP caucus, 105 out of 20, 222 members, have pledged not to support any term limit longer than six years in the House. These members signed the U.S. Term Limits Pledge, publicly declaring that they would never support a House limit in excess of three terms. So if they vote for McCarthy-Jordan plan, they'll be breaking their word of the Constitutes. If they can keep their pledges and vote against a 24-year-old toothless limit, future opponents will mischaracterize their opposition and torment them for voting against term limits. It would be a lose-lose political outcome in the truest sense. To illustrate the dilemma here, several incumbents have already caught flack for retreating from their pledge on term limits. Representative Derek Von Ordain of Wisconsin, Young Kim of California, Claudia Tenney of New York, 
who have all flirted with longer terms have been met with billboards and TV ads attacking them as potential pledge breakers. Tenney, for example, has been criticized in attack ads and negative op-eds funded by U.S. Term Limits itself or Term Limits Action, a super PAC, end quote. So basically, McCarthy may be looking at, because I'm pretty sure that he is also going to get flack if he goes forward with this quote-unquote toothless term limit bill and he may be really worried he's like oh no 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 okay this is this is not a good political position for me but but remember he could very well vote it down or he could ask jim jordan to put in an amendment that says okay we're going to keep it to three terms in the house and if they were to do that then it would probably get through a lot of these people who are against it because they've signed this term limit agreement in the past, and then it gets to the Senate. And guess what? The Senate is not going to vote for it. You would need two-thirds of the Senate. You're probably not going to get at least half of the Democrats, and you're probably not going to get half of the Republicans considering most of them are career politicians anyway. So what the article is arguing here, which I think is a politically savvy move, while I don't agree with it in essence, it is a politically savvy move, which is, hey, just put it up to the Senate and you know that the Senate's not going to pass it. Now, this could backfire and the National Review could be wrong and the Senate may actually pass it and be like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll take you up on this idea. I highly doubt that would be the case, but maybe they actually do that and it would backfire. But what Natural Review is saying is, no, no, play it smart, McCarthy. Okay, put through this amendment that makes it the six years that the House could be there, and then you don't have to worry about anything because you know it's not going to pass, and then you can blame the Senate for not passing it. The thing is, though, that the National Review is missing here is it puts them in a precarious situation if the Republicans win back the Senate by a huge majority or even just enough of a majority that they could convince the other half or maybe one third of the Democrats to join them on the next vote, then when he is inevitably going to say, no, 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 I'm not okay with this three term limit for House members, even though he supported it in the past, he will get even more lambasted. And I think the National Review is fully aware of that. But I also think they believe that there's not going to be enough support in the Senate anytime soon to pass term limits because, I mean, what politician wants to put any limits on their power? Come on now. That's not how they would uh, want to go about it, especially with the amount of influence that they can gain from being in a position where they can dictate what happens throughout the rest of the country or even just the amount of inside information that they can get when it comes to stock trade. I mean, I'm not saying any of them do it. No, I'm not accusing Nancy Pelosi. I am not saying that she is an amazing stock trader only because of the information she gets from being in the government. I am not saying that. Do not, do not clip this and send it to Nancy Pelosi. Miss Pelosi, I am not saying that. I just think that you are one of the greatest traders of our generation, and I love it. You know what? Let the free market ride, baby. You do what you need to do. <laughs> all right, with all that out of the way, let's jump to our last story that comes from the New York Times. Why China's young people are not getting married. And this is something that is very concerning to the Chinese people, but more importantly, the CCP, the ruling party in China, because they're already looking at a demographic collapse coming here in the next few years. And if you don't have a younger generation willing to get married, because especially in China where the culture is you don't have kids outside of wedlock, 
then you're going to have even worse demographic collapse coming. But there are a few different features or reasons why this is happening in Chinese culture, and the New York Times tries to highlight all of them. So I want to talk about the first one that is talking about the post-pandemic era and how it is not actually putting a lot of young people in China in a secure or they don't feel like it's a secure environment in order to settle down. Quote, it has been a brutal three years for the Chinese young adults. Their unemployment rate is soaring amid a wave of corporate layoffs. Draconian coronavirus restrictions are over, but not the sense of uncertainty about the future they created. For many people, the recent turmoil is another reason to postpone major life decisions, contributing to a record low rate marriage rate and complicating the government's efforts to stave off a demographic collapse, end quote. And there, there's a little bit more here, and we'll get into a personal anecdote. But what I wanted to point out here is I was listening to something the other day, which is how do you stave off revolution? How do you stave off your country falling apart? And it's stability. It's allowing the citizenry to believe or having the system in place that is stable enough to reassure the people that if they stay in this country, if they invest in this country, if they build a business in this country, if they have a family in this country, 50, 20, 85, 100, 14 years, any time span in the future that this country will still be around, that the country is stable enough to survive, that encourages people to invest and stay in the country. If you think your country is going to collapse in 10 years, what are you going to do? Either one, you're going to spur on the collapse and then make sure that your faction or your side comes out on top, or you're going to probably go to another country. Now, there are, of course, the very patriotic who will stay behind and try to make it work, but I'm working underneath the assumption if you know the country is going to collapse, those are probably the two most likely outcomes. So you start to see certain things like this where the younger population is like, I don't know what the heck is going on right now. I don't want to make such a life-altering decision when I don't even know where I'm going to be in two or three years. Quote, Grace Zhang a tech worker who had been long ambivalent about marriage, spent two months barricaded in the government lockdown of Shanghai last year. Robbed of the ability to move freely, she spiraled over the loss of control. She saw the lockdown spread to other cities. Her sense of optimism faded. When China reopened in December, Ms. Zhang, 31, left Shanghai to work remotely, traveling the country from city to city in hopes that a change of scene would restore her positive outlook. Now, as she sees rising layoffs around her in the troubled economy, she wonders if her job is secure enough to sustain a future family. She has a boyfriend, but no immediate plans to marry, despite frequent admonishments of her father that it's time to settle down. Quote, This kind of instability in life will make people more and more afraid of making new life changes, end quote, she said. And that's exactly what it is. Are you going to commit to somebody for the rest of your life? Are you going to commit to raising children in a place that you don't know is going to survive? It's about stability. I already talked about this. I'm not trying to be a broken record. But why would you put down roots, literally put down roots of buying a house, making sure that you have a car, a good job to raise the kids, to put them into education, if you think that coming down the road, you're going to have to move them somewhere else? Or 
this goes even just for cities, not just for countries. Imagine if New York's going to collapse. Are you going to get married and stay there and have your kids go to a worse-off school, be in a place that has rising crime or has a rising amount of drug use? No, you're going to move to the suburbs where things are a little bit more stable and get them into a good high school, or sorry, I guess a good elementary school, and hope that they get into a good high school and then a good college. So right now, China is reeling. And I think that some of the population is looking at the upcoming demographic collapses and is kind of seeing, okay, this is a problem. And it's now becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Some people in the younger generation are saying, wow, things are going downhill. I can see it going downhill. And do I want to stay and be a part of it? Or do I want to get out while the getting's good? And then, like I said, with that kind of mentality, less people see hope in the future, more people leave, you have a brain drain, you have less people committing to starting families and growing the population. It is just a downward spiral with one thing affecting the other, affecting the other, and creating the exact problem that China is directly fearing. So let's talk about the exact effect on marriages. Quote, the number of marriages in China declined for nine consecutive years, falling by half in less than a decade. Last year, about 6.8 million couples registered for marriage, the lowest since the records began in 1986, down from 13.5 million in 2013, according to government data released last month. Although the numbers have risen so far in 2023 compared to the year before, more marriages are ending too. In the first quarter of this year, 40,000 more couples that were married compared to the same period last year filed for divorce. Surveys have shown that young people are deterred by the toll of putting a child through China's cutthroat education system as women in cities achieve a new level of financial security and education, marriage is less of an economic necessity to them, and men say they can't afford to get married, citing cultural pressures to own a home and a car before they even begin dating, end quote. So this is not just the turmoil going on in China, but also the underlying culture, which is there's a shift. Now women are becoming more independent because they're becoming more educated. They're seeing more financial opportunities. And this idea that men have to have everything in order before they even get married, it's becoming harder because men are being displaced from the workforce. They're not getting as many of these high-paying jobs because there are more women coming into the workforce, as well as the fact that there are just more men in general. So if you want to put aside what they have to have before they get married, there are more men in China because of the one China policy fighting over less women who also happen to be more educated and making more money, which means you have to be an even more stellar candidate in order to win them over and convince them that you are worth their time to marry. So you can see that this is just a really tough bout for China. And I feel bad for the Chinese people. I don't feel bad for the Communist Party. I don't think that they are a government that really has the people's interest in, in, at heart. They have their own political international interests. But I do feel bad for the Chinese people because they were once a thriving nation. And as they've come back into prominence, they've had to destroy some of their deep cultural ties that were some of the greatest pieces of literature, art, philosophy that kind of get ignored in the West. And, you know, there has been a shift recently in college. There were a lot of different classes talking about non-Western cultures. And the sections on China were always interesting to me because it's something we covered in high school, but not too in-depth. And it is sad to see this cultural Marxism that has destroyed 
the deep connections that they had to this original China. And I feel bad for the people. I really do. And it looks like it's a downhill slope. Now, it doesn't mean that China's not going to bounce back. They very well could. They could put in a five-child policy where you have to have five kids. They'll have maybe forced marriages. With how much control the government has in the country, maybe they will do something like that. But I feel bad for the people at this point. It doesn't look rosy, and it doesn't look great going forward. So we'll see how that pans out. Maybe it will actually spur them to be a little bit more aggressive on the world stage. And if they come out on top, maybe there will be a renewed sense of nationalism within the country, and more people will be willing to stay and have kids because they see it going up. Because China is now the world leader. They are the top of the international hierarchy and maybe more people will see a bright future in China, but I don't see it right now. Let's hope that they can recover, and I know that may be a little bit weird, me saying I don't like the CCP, but I don't necessarily want the people of China to suffer just because their leadership is threatening the Western way of life. That's not fair to them. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from One Green Planet. Goat earns internet fame by babysitting kittens. So every parent, you know, they have that favorite babysitter that they call whenever they want one good date night. This is not just something that applies to humans, though. This is something that applies to animal parents as well. Quote, in a heartwarming display of interspecies bonding, a goat named Phoenix has captured the hearts of social media users with a video showing him caring for a litter of kittens, end quote. And it appears that he's not just a fan, or the parents aren't just a fan of him, but the kids are too. Quote, the clip posted on June 29th showcases Phoenix attentively watching over five tiny kittens as the feline babies snuggle up to him and the contentment in their purring is palpable, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I put a t- Twitter tirade up every Tuesday and Thursday. Not so scripted. It's more of a no quotes, just talking about random things that I find interesting. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>